0: Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sunday, visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together.
1: We are nearing the end of our series in the book of Matthew, so if you have a Bible or a Bible app, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 27, verse 11, and we will pick up there in a moment. If you've been tracking with the narrative these last few weeks, you know that Jesus has been arrested And falsely condemned by the religious elite, and that all of his friends have abandoned or betrayed him, and he is now on his way toward execution. But there's one final hurdle that the religious elite have to overcome, and that's Rome. The Romans are the ruling authority in Israel, and an oppressive one at that. And while they've given some rights to the temple and the religious elite who oversee the temple, they also keep them on a short leash. And one of the rules was that no one was to be executed or put to death except by the Romans themselves. And this puts uh, the religious elite in a a difficult position. They will have to win the favor of Rome in order to have Jesus executed. And that's where we pick up in this week's narrative.
0: Uh, We'll pick up in Matthew 27, verse 11. It says, Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, who's the, the Roman ruler. And the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Barabbas, they answered. What shall do him? Why, what crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, His blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. And they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and when Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him were who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake, and all that had happened, they were terrified, and exclaimed, Surely He was the Son of God. Many women were there, watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for His needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons.
1: Let's pray. Jesus, as we... Uh, enter this narrative this morning uh, that that comes with it sort of a a darkness and a a heaviness would you uh, speak to us would you would you whisper to each one of us uh, about uh, what it is that you were up to uh, in these moments what it is that you uh, accomplished here at the cross and would you uh, make it real to us this morning as we contemplate what happened on that day. In Jesus' name, amen. Throughout Jesus' earthly life, he was looking forward to this moment. As the earth lay in darkness, under the oppressive rule of Satan, sin, and death, God decided to step in. And he did so at just the right moment. The Son of God had come to die on our behalf. He had come to set us free. Before the religious elite, he says nothing. Brought up on false charges, he admits to only one thing. To being the Messiah which Scripture had foretold. Convinced that he is lying, the religious elite do what they have to in order to protect their power and privilege, and they decide to put Jesus to death. But only the Romans can execute, and so now he's brought before the regional governor, Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate lived in a palace on the coast, a long way from the mountaintop city of Jerusalem. He had no interest in it, except for on occasions like this one. He had come to town for one reason and one reason only, to stop any rebellion that might spring up during the Passover, to stop anyone who might challenge the harsh reign of Caesar. Under normal circumstances, if the Messiah came, one would expect the people of Israel and the religious leaders to support the Messiah to the bitter ends, and for the Romans to execute or assassinate. But in a strange reversal of roles, it's the people themselves who are calling for the death of their own Messiah, and Rome, their tyrannical ruler, who is advocating to keep him alive. The Romans had crucified thousands of people for resisting their rule, and they cared little for the life of a Hebrew. But in an ironic twist, Jesus' greatest advocate seems to be the Roman ruler himself. Why crucify this man, Pilate says. It doesn't make sense. The one so quick to kill now hangs back in hesitation. Pilate tries to give the people a way out. Perhaps they can admit Jesus' guilt but set him free all the same. So he offers the release of a prisoner, this crowd-pleasing tactic that the Romans would use. Perhaps the people will vote to set Jesus free and diffuse the entire situation. Perhaps this is the way forward. But alas, the crowds also have been convinced by the religious elite that Jesus must die. His blood is on our hands, they cry. Blame us for putting Him to death. Crucify Him. Why, Pilate says, what crime has He committed? But they shouted all the louder, crucify Him. Pilate washes his hands in front of the crowds to show them he wants no part in this innocent man's blood. But the city is ready to blow. And if it does, Pilate is at the very least out of a job. Should he fail to stop an uprising in this place, his political career is over. In fact, in Luke's recording of this same account, Jesus is brought to Pilate and accused of subverting the nation, refusing to pay taxes to Caesar, and claiming to be a king. That's the premise under which he's brought, and if these charges have any truth to them, then Jesus is a threat to Caesar's reign, and Pilate's hands are tied. He, he has to move forward. He sees no way except to cave to their demands. And so at last he relents and hands Jesus over to be flogged and beaten. Having been mocked and insulted, he is beaten half to death before he is led out to the cross. The loss of blood is so great that Simon of Cyrene is recruited to help carry the cross as Jesus can barely stand. When they finally arrive at Golgotha, he is nailed to a cross and lifted up for the world to see. And he's again insulted and mocked along the way. Over the hours that follow, the crowds gradually die down, their curiosity satisfied the fate of Jesus, sealed. And in the end, there is at last silence and darkness. Darkness, perhaps because no eye should see, and silence because no tongue could tell, the anguish which our sinless Savior now endured. The judgment of God, now rested on him. Hundreds of years before Jesus' birth, Isaiah described him prophetically with this language. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. As part of bearing our sin and standing in our place, he experiences the dreadful judgment of sin within his own body. And as he does, he cries out, Father, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? As Jesus bears the ultimate judgment within Himself, He expresses the horror of it by quoting the only passage of Scripture that could describe His experience. The great anguish of this moment is beyond comprehension. But as Jesus suffers and dies on the cross, a great victory is being won. The powers of darkness are being conquered. The power of sin is being broken. And Jesus is tasting death for all of us. Until at last... It is finished. Jesus cries out in a loud voice and gives up His Spirit. At last, they had accomplished what both Father and Son had set out to do from the beginning. For their joint will and plan was that He would bear the sins of the world deliberately, freely, and in perfect love. The plan of Father and Son was that Jesus would endure our judgments in our place and that He would conquer Satan and the powers of darkness, displaying the heart of God to the world as He did. In the process of the cross, our salvation was won. The power of death has been broken, evil has been conquered, and Jesus completes a perfect life, being obedient unto death, and then turning around to share His righteousness with us. He gives up His life so that we will share an eternal life. And as He does, He establishes a new covenant between people and God in which our sins are forgiven and we are brought near under the blessing and favor of God Himself. And as He breathed His last and gave up His spirit, we're told that the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom telling the world that the barrier that once stood between people and God had at last been torn down by God Himself. God's presence on earth, uh, once contained behind the curtain, was now being poured out on a thirsty world. Where there was no way, God made a way. The cross of Jesus changes everything. And and like a great mountain, it's almost easier to describe from a distance, looking on from different angles, through the lens of the Old Testament prophets, from the comfort of an armchair, but as we ascend to the top of the mountain itself, we find ourselves at a loss for words. What can be said about this moment? How do we describe all that God has done in this place? We are standing on holy ground. How can we grasp the the sacrifice, the grace, the the abundant and unearned love poured out in this place? The, The vastness of the landscape is beyond description. The author of Hebrews says it this way. He says, You have not come. To a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire. That's a reference to Mount Sinai, the old covenant and the law. You have not come to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. That was them, next slide, but not you, the writer of Hebrews says. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood of Christ that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And if you're new to the Bible, and all of that sounds confusing and and convoluted, and you feel a bit lost, then the simplest summary I can give is the one given by the Children's Storybook Bible, which simply says, in Jesus, all the sad things are coming untrue. The cross is ground zero. This is where humanity is reconciled to God. This is where new covenant begins and new life is found. This is where the powers of darkness stand defeated. This is where God broke the back of sin and death. This is where the door to the kingdom of heaven is flung wide open so that the masses of people, unworthy people like us, are at last cleansed, forgiven, and made new. And then we are invited into the deep mysteries of God into the Holy of Holies, behind the curtain, behind the veil, into the presence of the Father, with boldness and confidence, according to His great pleasure and will. Would you stand with me? We are going to respond this morning by taking communion, and uh, worshiping through music. And uh, as we do, I've asked uh, some people to come, come up uh, it, over the course of this next song as everyone else is grabbing communion and just kind of share real simple from the heart uh, about the cross and, and what the cross means for them and, and what perhaps it, it might mean for us. And so rather than doing an hour-long theological teaching on all of the things that God was up to at the cross, uh, what I want us to do this morning is is as a community to to practice the the art of of contemplating, of of worshiping, of expressing gratitude for all that the cross is and, and what it means acknowledging that we are welcomed into the kingdom of God. Yes, here and now, as it breaks into this reality, and when the fullness comes at the end of the age, we are invited into the kingdom of God by the way of the cross. And and so we're going to to celebrate and contemplate what it is that, that God accomplished on that fateful day when he was condemned to die. Let's pray. Jesus, as we come to this mountain that is the cross, that all of Scripture had been anticipating, that all of human history had been leading up to, there is a sense in which we should be at a loss for words. And yet, we come as a community... To, to, to ascend that mountain, to sit at the foot of the cross and allow it to speak a fresh word to us. And Jesus, for those of us in the room who maybe are new to the Bible, new to, to uh, these words and thoughts and images, new to the gospel, I, I pray that this would be a really good time and place and maybe even a really good morning. For, for them to turn their lives over to Jesus for the first time. To, to come under the cross and all that it is and all that it represents and all that comes to us through this event. And, and Jesus, because most of us in this room are already your followers, I pray that as we sit, as we contemplate, as we worship, I pray that you would would speak a fresh word to us, that we would would receive all over again what it is that you've done, that we would stand in awe at the top of that mountain and and rejoice in this event that was the the, the culmination uh, of, of your plan of so many hundreds of years leading up to and anticipating this moment. And so God, as we, um, as we take communion together, uh, as we uh, listen to, to others sharing their, their thoughts on the cross, I pray um, that you would meet us in this place, that our hearts and minds would be turned toward you. And that ultimately, we would celebrate the cross as a gathered community and, and go out from this place wanting to live under and, and even display outwardly the beauty of the cross of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.